Welcome back, everyone, to 1001 Heroes, Legends, Histories, and Mysteries podcast. This is your host, John Hagedorn. As I begin to write this story, the World Cup games of 2022 are playing out in Qatar. Games between the world's best football-slash-soccer teams, which have been proven thus far peaceful, even though in some cases the competing countries have maintained tense relations with each other, proving that indeed there are ways men and countries with vast differences can come together in peace to compete. In this case, according to the best account I could find, Scotland played Germany during a brief break near the outset of the Great War, the war that many of us call World War I, somewhere between Christmas and New Year's Day in Belgium, and we'll share an eyewitness account of that from William Cook as we get near the end of today's story. 108 years ago, in 1914, at Christmas time in Flanders, Belgium, five months into a raging war in Europe that knew no peace and quiet, and certainly no silent nights, a number of situations occurred which many today look upon as a Christmas miracle. One of these situations was an impromptu soccer match between hated enemies, German soldiers and British soldiers. The story of the Christmas truce began, as best as anyone can remember, with a German soldier singing Silent Night. Soon, a British voice responded. Other voices joined in. It was sporadic, but it continued up and down the lines of what was called then the Western Front. The trench lines were sometimes within a hundred yards of each other. In between was no man's land. In some places, men called out for a momentary truce. Others answered. A few brave men stood and walked forward unarmed. In some places, they met and shook hands. They traded cigarettes. They showed pictures of their girlfriends, wives, and families. Some Germans knew English. These were men who for five months had been trying in every way to kill each other. Germans on the one side, and French, British, and Belgian on the other. For a time, certainly not along all the lines, but in some places, there was peace. It was a fragile peace, but it was a peace. And the event that many called the Christmas miracle started with the song, Silent Night. This is the incredible story of the Christmas truce of 1914. During the first eight weeks of World War I, French and British troops, with heavy casualties, stopped the German advance through Belgium into France just outside of Paris at the First Battle of the Marne. That occurred in early September of 1914. The Germans fell back to the Aisne Valley, where they dug in. There, both sides started building trenches, and soon those trenches, which marked the front lines for the combatants, had spread from the North Sea to the Swiss frontier. Before Christmas of that year, there were several peace initiatives. A public message for peace called the Open Christmas Letter, addressed to the women of Germany and Austria, and signed by 101 British suffragettes, asked for a Christmas peace. Pope Benedict XV, who had taken office that September, had originally called for a Christmas truce, an idea that was officially rejected. He asked that the guns fall silent, at least upon the night that the angels sang, to which no reply was given. 
"'yet it seems the sheer misery of daily life "'in the cold, wet, dull trenches "'was enough to motivate troops "'to initiate the truce on their own, "'which means that it's hard to pin down "'exactly what happened. "'Truces between British and German units "'can be dated back to early November, 1914. "'Rations were brought up to the front line at dusk, "'and soldiers on both sides "'knowed a time of peace while they collected their food. "'By December 1st, a British soldier could record a friendly visit from a German sergeant one morning, quote, to see how we were getting on, end quote. Relations between French and German units were considerably more strained. No wonder, after centuries of war and mistrust between the two countries. In early December, a German surgeon recorded a regular half-hour truce each evening to recover dead soldiers for burial, during which French and German soldiers exchanged newspapers. There exists a huge range of differing oral accounts, diary entries, and letters home from those who took part to make it virtually impossible to speak of a typical Christmas truce as it took place across the Western Front. To this day, historians continue to disagree over the specifics. No one knows where it began or how it spread, or if, by some curious festive magic, it broke out simultaneously across the trenches. Nevertheless, some two-thirds of the gathered troops— about a hundred thousand men, are believed to have participated in the legendary truce. Some accounts suggest that the singing of Silent Night began on a crisp, clear morning, and maybe it did. But most accounts suggest that the truce began with carol singing from the trenches on Christmas Eve, described as, quote, a beautiful moonlit night, frost on the ground, white almost everywhere, end quote as Private Albert Morin of the 2nd Queen's Regiment recalled, in a document later rounded up by the New York Times. Graham Williams of the 5th London Rifle Brigade described it in even greater detail. He wrote, First the Germans would sing one of their carols, and then we would sing one of ours, until when we started up, O come all ye faithful, the Germans immediately joined in singing the same hymn to the Latin words, Adesti Fidelis. And I thought, well... This is really a most extraordinary thing. Two nations, both singing the same carol, in the middle of a war. The next morning, in some places, German soldiers emerged from their trenches, calling out, Merry Christmas, in English. Allied soldiers came out warily to greet them. In others, Germans held up signs reading, You know shoot, we know shoot. Over the course of the day, Troops exchanged gifts of cigarettes, food, buttons, and hats. The Christmas truce also allowed both sides to finally bury their dead comrades, whose bodies had lain for weeks on no man's land, as they called it, the ground between opposing trenches. The phenomenon took different forms across the Western Front. One account mentions a British soldier having his hair cut by his pre-war German barber. Another talks of a pig roast. The truce was widespread but not universal. Evidence suggests that in many places firing continued, and then at least two, a truce was attempted, but soldiers attempting to fraternize were shot by opposing forces. And, of course, it was only ever a truce, not a peace. Hostilities returned in some places later that day, and in others not until after New Year's Day. I remember the silence, the eerie sound of silence, one veteran from the 5th Battalion, the Black Watch, Alfred Anderson, later recalled to the Observer. It was a short piece, 
and a terrible war. We'll return with our story right after these sponsor messages. And now back to our story, The Christmas Truce of 1914. Another man recalled his moment of peace to a Scottish editor. Suddenly a song drifted across the frozen battlefield. Stille Nacht, Heilige Nacht, Alles Schlacht, Einsam Bacht. To the ears of the British troops peering over their trench, the lyrics may have been unfamiliar, but the haunting tune was unmistakable. It was silent night. After the last note, a lone German infantryman appeared holding a small tree glowing with light. Merry Christmas! We not shoot! You not shoot! It was just after dawn on a bitingly cold Christmas day in 1914, a hundred and eight years ago, and one of the most extraordinary incidents of the Great War was about to unfold. Weary men climbed hesitantly at first out of their trenches and stumbled into no man's land. They shook hands, sang carols, lit each other's cigarettes, swapped tunic buttons and addresses, and most famously, played football, yes, soccer, as we call it here in America, kicking around empty bully-beef cans and using their caps or steel helmets as goalposts. Sometimes the teams got as large as 60 on a side. The unauthorized Christmas truce spread across much of the 500-mile-long western front, where more than a million men were encamped. Seeing that picture in your mind can't help but make you wish that peace could have come forever, beginning with that moment. We would like to say that today, 108 years later, the world is a better place, but there is still war and death. All you have to do is look at Russia and Ukraine. According to records held by the World War I Veterans Association, as of 10 years ago, there was only one man in the world still alive who spent December 25, 1914, serving in a conflict that left 31 million people dead, wounded, or missing. Alfred Anderson was 18 at the time. Speaking to the journal The Observer, Anderson revealed remarkable new details of the day etched on history, including pictures of Christmas gifts sent to the troops. His unit, the 5th Battalion, the Black Watch, was one of the first involved in trench warfare. He had left his home in Newtile, Angus, in October, taking the train from Dundee to Southampton, then a ferry to La Havre. He was happy, healthy, and surrounded by most of his former school friends, who had all joined the Territorial Army together in 1912. In October of 1914, they thought that they were at the start of an exciting adventure. But by the first Christmas of the war, they had already experienced that its horror and the death of young friends was commonplace. On the 24th and 25th of December, 1914, Anderson's unit was billeted in a dilapidated farmhouse, away from the front line, so he did not participate in any football matches. We didn't have the energy anyway, he said, but he can still recall vividly what happened on Christmas Day, 1914. I remember the silence, the eerie sound of silence, he said. Only the guards were on duty. We all went outside the farm buildings and just stood listening. And, of course, thinking of people back home. All I'd heard for two months in the trenches was the hissing, cracking, and whining of bullets in flight, machine gun fire, cannon fire, and distant German voices. But there was a dead silence that morning, right across the land as far as you could see. 
We shouted, Merry Christmas, even though nobody felt merry. The silence ended early in the afternoon, and the killing started again. It was a short peace and a terrible war. On some parts of the front, the ceasefire lasted several weeks. There are also numerous trench yarns, some possibly apocryphal, about the impromptu fraternizing. One, detailed in Michael Yurg's book, The Small Peace in the Big War, involved a young private who was led to a tent behind German lines by an aristocratic officer and plied with Vieux Clicquot. In another tale, a barber supposedly set up shop in no man's land, offering a trim to troops from either side. At the tender age of a hundred and eight, at this writing, and living alone in a lith, and living alone in Aleth, Perthshire, Anderson still treasures the gift package sent to every soldier a few days before the first Christmas of the war from the Princess Royal. The brass box, which is embossed with a profile of Princess Mary, was filled with cigarettes. It also contained a cream-colored card with 1914 on the front, which says, With best wishes for a happy Christmas and a victorious New Year. From the Princess Mary and friends at home. He said, I'd no use for the cigarettes, so I gave them to my friends. A lot of the lads thought the box was worth nothing, but I said someone's bound to have put a lot of thought into it. Some of the boys had Christmas presents from home anyway, but mine didn't arrive on time. To his delight, he discovered that his most treasured possession, a New Testament given to him by his mother before he left for France, and inscribed with the message, September 5th, 1914, Alfred Anderson, a present from mother, fitted the box perfectly. He kept both of them in his breast pocket until 1916, when a shell exploded over a listing post in no man's land, killing several of his friends and seriously injuring him. This is all I brought home from the war, he said, showing the box and Bible, but forgetting about his beret with its famous red hackle, which is the first thing you'll see when you step into his house. Still, there are many aspects of the war that Anderson finds difficult to talk about. I saw so much horror, he said, shaking his head and gazing into the middle distance. I lost so many friends. He recalled one incident that gave him a sore heart. When he was first home on leave, he visited the family of a dead friend to express his condolences. He knew them well, but soon realized that he was getting a frosty reception. I asked if they were going to ask me in, and they said no. When I asked why, they just said, "'Because you're here, and he's not.' "'That was awful. "'He's one of the lads I've missed most.' Two years ago, Prince Charles paid him a private visit after learning that he had served briefly as Batman to the Queen Mother's brother, Captain Fergus Bowes Lyon, who, along with hundreds of Mr. Anderson's regimental colleagues, was killed at the Battle of Luz in 1915. The seemingly invincible Anderson, who was awarded France's highest honor, the Legion d'Honor, in 1998 for his services during the First World War, was recently in the rare position of witnessing one of his six children's golden wedding anniversaries. His children, he said, five of whom are still alive, are what keeps him going. Alfred Anderson has spent 90 years trying to forget the war, but it has been impossible. I'll give Christmas Day 1914 a brief thought, as I do every year, he said and I'll think about all my friends who never made it home. But it's too sad to think too much about it. Far too sad, he said, his head bowed and his eyes filled with tears. 
On Christmas Day, Brigadier General Walter Congreve, commander of the 18th Infantry Brigade, stationed near Neuve-Chapelle, wrote a letter declaring that the Germans declared a truce for Christmas Day. One of his men bravely lifted his head above the parapet, and others from both sides walked out into no man's land. Officers and men shook hands and exchanged cigarettes and cigars. One of his men exchanged smokes with the best shot in the German army, he being no more than 18 years old. Congreve only wrote about it. He didn't participate, being distrusting of German snipers. His brigadier general's uniform made a tempting target. Bruce Barnesfather, who fought throughout the war, wrote, I wouldn't have missed that unique and weird Christmas day for anything. I spotted a German officer, some sort of lieutenant, I should think, and being a bit of a collector, I intimated to him that I'd taken a fancy to some of his buttons. I brought out my wire clippers and, with a few deft snips, removed a couple of his buttons and put them in my pocket. I then gave him two of mine in exchange. The last I saw was one of my machine gunners, who was a bit of an amateur hairdresser in civil life, cutting the unnaturally long hair of a docile Bosch, who was patiently kneeling on the ground whilst the automatic clippers crept up the back of his neck. Henry Williamson, a 19-year-old private in the London Rifle Brigade, wrote to his mother on Boxing Day, Dear Mother, I am writing from the trenches. It is 11 o'clock in the morning. Beside me is a coal fire. Opposite me a dugout. The ground is sloppy in the actual trench, but frozen elsewhere. In my mouth is a pipe presented by the Princess Mary. In the pipe is tobacco. Of course, you say. But wait. In the pipe is German tobacco. Ha-ha, you say, from a prisoner, or found in a captured trench. No, from a German soldier. Yes, a live German soldier from his own trench. Yesterday the British and Germans met and shook hands in the ground between the trenches, and exchanged souvenirs. Yes, all day, Christmas Day. And as I write. Marvelous, isn't it? Captain Sir Edward Hulse reported how the first interpreter he met from the German lines was from Suffolk, and had left his girlfriend at a three-and-a-half horsepower motorcycle. Hulse described a sing-song which ended up with Old Lang Syne, which we all, English, Scots, Irish, Prussians, Württembergers, etc., joined in. It was absolutely astounding, and if I had seen it on a cinematograph film, I should have sworn that it was faked. Captain Robert Miles, King's Shropshire Light Infantry, who was attached to the Royal Irish Rifles, recalled in an edited letter that was published in the Daily Mail and the Wellington Journal and Shrewsbury News in January of 1915, following his death in action on December 30th, 1914. Friday, Christmas Day. We are having the most extraordinary Christmas Day imaginable. A sort of unarranged and quite unauthorized, but perfectly understood and scrupulously observed truce exists between us and our friends in front. The funny thing is, it only seems to exist in this part of the battle line. On our right and left, we can all hear them firing away as cheerfully as ever. The thing started last night, a bitter cold night, with white frost. Soon after dusk, when the Germans started shouting, Merry Christmas, Englishmen, to us. Of course, our fellows shouted back, and presently large numbers on both sides had left their trenches, unarmed, and met in the debatable, shot-riddled, no-man's land between the lines. Here the agreement, all on their own, 
came to be made that we should not fire at each other until after midnight tonight. The men were all fraternizing in the middle. We naturally did not allow them too close to our line, and swapped cigarettes and lies in the utmost good fellowship. Not a shot was fired all night. Of the Germans, he wrote, They are distinctly bored with the war. In fact, one of them wanted to know what on earth we were doing here fighting them. The truth in that sector continued into Boxing Day. He commented about the Germans. The beggars simply disregard all our warnings to get down from off their parapet, so things are at a deadlock. We can't shoot them in cold blood. I cannot see how we can get them to return to business. A German lieutenant, Johannes Niemann, wrote, Grabbed by binoculars and looking cautiously over the parapet, saw the incredible sight of our soldiers exchanging cigarettes, schnapps, and chocolate with the enemy. General Sir Horace Smith Dorian, commander of the Second Corps, issued orders forbidding friendly communication with the opposing German troops. Adolf Hitler, a corporal of the 16th Bavarian Reserve Infantry at that time, was also an opponent of the truce. In the Comine sector of the front, there was an early fraternization between German and French soldiers in December of 1914, during a short truce, and there are at least two other testimonials from French soldiers of similar behaviors in sectors where German and French companies opposed each other. Gervais Morillon wrote to his parents, The Bosch waved a white flag and shouted, Camarades, Camarades, rendezvous. When we didn't move, they came towards us, unarmed, led by an officer. Although we are not clean, they are disgustingly filthy. I am telling you this, but don't speak of it to anyone. We must not mention it even to other soldiers. Gustav Berthier wrote, On Christmas Day, the Bosch made a sign showing they wished to speak to us. They said they didn't want to shoot. They were tired of making war. They were married like me. They didn't have any differences with the French, but with the English. On Yeezer Front, where German and Belgian troops faced each other in December of 1914, a truce was arranged at the bequest of Belgian soldiers who wished to send letters back to their families over the German-occupied parts of Belgium. Many accounts of the truce involved one or more football matches played in no man's land. This was mentioned in some of the earliest reports, with a letter written by a doctor attached to the rifle brigade, published in the Times on January 1, 1915, and reporting a football match played between them and us in front of the trench. Similar stories have been told over the years, often naming units or the score. Some accounts of the game bring in elements of fiction by Robert Graves, a British poet and writer, and an officer on the front at the time, who reconstructed the encounter in a story published in 1962. In Graves' version, the score was 3-2 to the Germans. The truth of the accounts has been disputed by some historians. In 1984, Malcolm Brown and Shirley Seaton concluded that there were probably attempts to play organized matches which failed due to the state of the ground, but that the contemporary reports were either hearsay or referred to kickabout matches with made-up football, such as bully beef tins. Chris Baker, former chairman of the Western Front Association and author of The Truce, The Day the War Stopped, was also skeptical, but says that although there is little evidence, the most likely place that an organized match could have taken place was near the village of Messine. There are two references to a game being played on the British side, 
but nothing from the Germans. If somebody one day found a letter from a German soldier who was in that area, then we would have something credible. Lieutenant Kurt Zamish of the 134th Saxon Infantry Regiment said that the English brought a soccer ball from their trenches, and pretty soon a lively game ensued. How marvelously wonderful, yet how strange it was, he said. In 2011, Mike Dash concluded that there is plenty of evidence that football was played that Christmas day, mostly by men of the same nationality, but in at least three or four places between troops from the opposing armies. The best account I could find here at 1001 seems pretty convincing. William Cook wrote it on December 2nd, 2021. Scotland played Germany in the 1914 Christmas truce match, but who won is the name of his article. In that article he writes, A few years ago, I fulfilled a lifelong ambition when I finally made my way to Plugstirt, or Plug Street, as the British Tommies came to call it. It's such an easy place to get to. I don't know why I didn't go before. It's in Belgium, but only just hard up against the French border. Catch the Eurostar to Lille, less than 90 minutes from London, and it's a 30-minute drive away. Plug Street is a sleepy place, like so many frontier towns in Flanders. When the sun shines, it looks quaint and pretty. When the weather's foul, which it often is, the Flemings share the best and worst of our temperamental British climate. It looks grim and desolate. Yet the reason I'd come here wasn't to see the town, but to wander around the windswept fields beyond it. For it was here, on Christmas Day in 1914, that German and British soldiers played the most wonderful, awful football match in the history of the game. The British held Plug Street throughout the war, save for a few weeks in 1918, when the Germans took it and then lost it again, in their last vainglorious advance. Throughout the war, it was on the front line between German-occupied Belgium and Allied-controlled France. If the Germans could take Plug Street, the route to Paris lay wide open for them. If the British could break out of this salient, they could push the Germans back toward Brussels. Yet, on Christmas 1914, it was already clear there would be no quick or easy victory for either side. Trench warfare favored defensive forces and stacked the odds against the attacker. A few machine guns could halt a mass infantry advance. The giddy optimism of the previous summer had been replaced by a weary fatalism. The war would not be over by Christmas after all. The Christmas Day truce of 1914 was entirely spontaneous. A scattered array of unofficial cease fires arranged by individual soldiers in the field. Along large stretches of the Western Front, the fighting continued unabated. Hundreds died, less than an ordinary day, but still a day of normal bloodshed. Yet in many places, soldiers laid down their arms, ventured out into no man's land, and befriended men they'd been trying to kill a few hours before. By all accounts, it began as a purely practical arrangement, a chance for both sides to retrieve their injured and bury their dead. The close proximity of the trenches made interaction unavoidable, and stretcher-bearers from either side began swapping chocolates, cigarettes, and trinkets. Their comrades clambered up out of the trenches, curious to see what was happening, and soon no man's land was full of young men, laughing, joking, having fun. There were several football games along the Western Front, 
but the one at Plug Street is the most well-known. Most were informal kickabouts, but this game was a bit more organized, something approaching a proper match between the 134th Royal Saxon Regiment and the 2nd Argyle and Sutherland Highlanders. So, strictly speaking, Germany versus Scotland, rather than Germany versus England, as it's often been reported in the past. The Saxons won 3-2. to two. The British brought a ball from the trenches, and soon a lively game ensued, wrote schoolteacher Lieutenant Kurt Zamish of the 134th Saxons in his diary. How marvelous, how wonderful, yet how strange it was. The British officers felt the same way about it. And so Christmas, that celebration of love, managed to bring together mortal enemies as friends for a time. Visiting Plug Street a century later, in the bleak midwinter, the first thing that hits you is the cold. I'd only been here an hour, and I couldn't wait to get back inside. Those poor sods were out here for months on end, with no respite, risking death whenever they dared raise their heads out of those waterlogged, rat-infested ditches. A line from Keats' Eve of St. Agnes, forgotten since my distant school days, sprang suddenly to mind. He passeth by, and his weak spirit fails to think how they may ache in icy hoods and mails. The second thing that strikes you is the lack of cover. These fields are as flat as fairways. There's nowhere to shelter, nowhere to hide. A hundred years later, there are still hardly any trees. To advance across here would have been suicidal. There's a simple memorial on the spot where that famous football match took place. I wonder how many of the players were still alive four years later. My son makes his living as a footballer. If he hadn't become a footballer, I think he might have joined the army. Standing here, I realize for the first time how these two occupations became curiously intertwined. Two of my great-grandfathers fought on opposite sides on the Western Front, although I have no idea what they did on Christmas Day of 1914. My German great-grandfather was a Junker baron who lived in a schloss in Mecklenburg. My British great-grandfather was a baker who lived in Peckham. Both of them survived the First World War. Both lost sons in the war that followed. The Allied and German high commands knew nothing about these Christmas Day festivities. When the news reached them, in their secluded chateau, a safe distance from the front, they did their utmost to put a stop to it. In most places, things were back to normal by Boxing Day. Captain J.C. Dunn wrote, At 8.30 a.m. I fired three shots in the air and put up a flag with Merry Christmas on it and climbed into the parapet. The German captain appeared on the parapet. He put up a sheet with Thank You on it. We both bowed and saluted and got down into our respective trenches, and he fired two shots in the air, and the war was on again. Many units were reported in contemporary accounts to have taken part in the games. Dash listed the 133rd Royal Saxon Regiment pitched against Scottish troops, the Argyle and Sutherland Highlanders, against unidentified Germans, with the Scots reported to have won 4-1. to one. The Royal Field Artillery against Prussians and Hanovers, near Ypres, and the Lancashire Fusiliers, near Le Toquet, with a detail of a bully beef ration tin as the ball. One recent writer has identified 29 reports of football, though does not give substantive details. Colonel J.E.B. Seeley recorded in his diary for Christmas Day 
that he had been invited to football match between Saxons and English on New Year's Day, but this does not appear to have taken place. As the Great War resumed, it wreaked so much destruction and devastation that soldiers became hardened to the brutality of the war. While there were occasional moments of peace throughout the rest of World War I, they never again came on the scale of the Christmas truce of 1914. Yet for many at the time, the story of the Christmas truce was not an example of chivalry in the depths of war, but rather a tale of subversion, when the men on the ground decided they were not fighting the same war as their superiors. With no man's land sometimes spanning just a hundred feet, enemy troops were so close that they could hear each other and even smell their cooking. The commander of the British Second Corps, General Sir Horace Smith Dorian, believed this proximity posed the greatest danger to the morale of soldiers, and told divisional commanders to explicitly prohibit any friendly intercourse with the enemy. In a memo issued on December 5th, he warned that, "...troops in trenches in close proximity to the enemy slide very easily, if permitted to do so, into a live-and-let-live theory of life." Indeed, one British soldier, Murdoch M. Wood, speaking in 1930, said, I then came to the conclusion that I've held very firmly ever since, that if we'd been left to ourselves, there would never have been another shot fired. Adolf Hitler, then a corporal of the 16th Bavarians, saw it much differently. Such a thing should not happen in wartime, he said to have remarked. Have you no German sense of honor? Still, a century later, the truce has been remembered as a testament to the power of hope and humanity in a truly dark hour of history. It's been immortalized and fictionalized in children's novels like Michael Foreman's War Game, in films such as The Joyeux Noel and Oh, What a Lovely War, and even in a controversial Christmas ad from Sainsbury's, a British supermarket chain, to mark the centenary. In 2014, Prince William unveiled a memorial on December 12th, a metal frame representing a soccer ball with two hands clasped inside it, and a week later, Inspired by the events of the truce, the British and German army soccer teams played a friendly match, and though the Christmas truce may have been a one-off in the conflict, the fact that it remains so widely commemorated speaks to the fact that at its heart it symbolizes a very human desire for peace, no matter how fleeting. And the truth is, it can't come soon enough. Thanks for joining us at 1001 Heroes, Legends, Histories, and Mysteries. There's lots to share as we head into 2023, and I'll start with a wish for world peace. As for our podcast, 1001 Stories Network, which is the umbrella beneath which reside all my creative works, we have some new ones entering the mix, among which are 1001's Best of Jack London, which is up now, and 1001 Radio Crime Solvers, which is our radio detective and crime sleuth podcast where you find a wide mix of great vintage detective shows, like Sam Spade, The Falcon, The Saint, Johnny Dollar, The British Show Pursuit, The Shadow, Agatha Christie's Hercule Poirot, Father Brown, and many more. All really good late-night and for-the-road listening, and almost always back-to-back half-hour episodes, so you get a full hour in most cases. And you'll really enjoy the old commercials. Again, that's 1001's Best of Jack London, and 1001 Radio Crime Solvers. Download them and enjoy wherever you listen to your podcast. 
And if you want all our 1001 Stories Network shows on tap, just go to 1001storiespodcast.com. That's 1001storiespodcast.com. You'll get them all, 24-7. That's our website. It's that easy. We really do appreciate reviews, so if you want to send us a really neat Christmas present, that's a great way to do it. Another way to send us a Christmas present is by becoming a supporter of our show, a patron. And you can do that by checking us out at patreon.com forward slash 1001 Stories Network. That's patreon, P-A-T-R-E-O-N dot com forward slash 1001 Stories Network. And there, for about the price of a cup of blended coffee every month, you can help 1001 Stories make it to 2001. And eventually, the sky's the limit. We appreciate our Patreon supporters very, very much. And by the way, on most weeks, they do get a forward copy of one of our upcoming shows. And everything they receive is ad-free. And we've got quite an archive of ad-free episodes built up there. So do give us a visit and check us out there at patreon.com forward slash 1001 Stories Network. That's it for now. Hope you enjoyed this show. Many more to come. And a whole... Thanks for listening. This is your host and storyteller, John Hagedorn. This is 1001 Heroes, Legends, Histories, and Mysteries podcast. Everyone stay safe out there, and we'll be back soon.